All right, listen, it packs a 427 down on 101. Darren, we're cracking a buck 1011 in the radar gun. It's Let Sally Drive. And why? Because we are the world's only dedicated Sammy Hagar podcast. This is the Bogus Otis Show. I am Bo Host Brent. That is Bo Host Darren. What is in your glass tonight, my friend? Well, in keeping with our special <laughs> guests, uh, we have someone who hits hard. So I chose a drink that does the same. So I'm drinking some Santo straight up, my friends. There's nothing better than straight up. And uh, straight up, how about we get right into it? Listen, uh, this is a happy belated 1013. Happy belated birthday to our guest tonight. A brother is in the house. Drummer. Bandmate. Longtime friend. Yeah, bro is here. Welcome, the one and only David Louser. Welcome to the Bogus Otis Show. Welcome, guys. Darren, Brent. By the way, I really like the white Santo. That's my favorite. And it's the cheaper <laughs> one. Because we keep saying how hard it is to get Santos up here in Canada. So we had a listener actually package up and send us some. So I got some uh, white Santos coming my way. So I'm excited. Yeah, it's really good with drinks. It's it's probably better with a mix. Not that I want to. I'm not a bartender, but I have been into it lately, you know. Well, uh, let, let's get into it. Let's get into it lately. What uh, what is what is David? What's your cocktail of choice? What do you mix with the Santo? You know what I really like. It's called a um, God. I I I got Sammy's cookbook or or mixology book. They wrote with somebody, and it's got like a high rating and and like I didn't. I mean, you know, he gave it to me. And I, it, a lot of times when you get swag or free stuff, you go, hey, thanks. And it goes on the shelf. Well, my wife and I enjoy a cocktail once in a while. You know, in fact, every night we do. And we don't overdo it. But uh, there's a martini that you you make, uh, you take sugar and water and you infuse it with an herb. I forget it. I don't have the recipe. In other words, you make a simple syrup or simple sugar. Yep. And then it's the tequila and I think lemon juice. Everything's organic. It's not like margarita mix. And it is killing. Is that the it's Cabotini? A, yes. The Cabotino is. Yeah. I'm not, I like to keep, I'm more of a vodka. Lately, I've been getting into gin. But, uh, guy, I'm sounding real good, aren't I? But, uh, <laughs> but the Cabotini blew my mind. And I actually texted Sam. And I go, dude, this is really good. He goes, you know, whatever. Party on, bro. But uh, the last gig I did with him in Vegas, they had a bunch of bottles backstage, and I kind of pilfered. Nice. I, <laughs> I love that. I asked for permission, but it was like, all right, put these in the bag, you know? Because they're, well, they're hard. You, you, you already answered one of our questions when you said that you had the cocktail book. Uh, my question was was actually going to be, did did Sammy actually give you a copy, or did he make you buy one? So you've already no, answered I, that. Honestly, tip, uh, to tell you the truth, I think he gave it to me. Nice. Because well, the, joke, yeah. the joke we have here is that we both have that book as well. In our houses, we call it the Bible. Yeah. 
Well, I'll, I'll share an interesting little trivia about that book. So I've given Sam love on this, you know. I mean, you know, we've known each other a long time, so I don't know if I can speak the King's English, but the bullshit factor is in jest. In other words, I don't bullshit him. I don't patronize him. If I don't like something, I don't go, hey, dude, this is awesome, you know. So I go, Sam, I got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm not really like into these kind of drinks, but these taste good. There was like two. We did two of them, and my wife really liked the other one. Uh, and he goes, bro, he goes, you know, I'm the kind of guy, like he's a good chef. He says, I don't measure stuff out. I take like a pinch of sugar and a this and that. And he goes, and the guy I was doing this with said, no, 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 no. We got to be scientific. You, you, We have to know that every time somebody makes this, it tastes the same. So he was like, he said, man, for the first time in my life, I had to be that structured, you know. And he was not kidding, you know. So it was like, uh, in other words, uh, he wanted it to be consistent. But my man is stubborn. For him to do that, he must have really wanted to make this work because the recipes are great, you know. And you're right. When you make them, according to the book, they they do taste exactly the same every time. So kudos. Yeah, to, you'd to the be map. surprised. People listening to this are like, "What the hell are they talking about booze for?" But it's amazing if you just use like a teaspoon more lemon juice or something, it changes it. Yeah, you're right. Well, look, it's all you can't escape math, right? And as a drummer, you know that, right? It's all math. You can't escape the math. What do you mean? Just kidding. <laughs> Oh, God, I should have turned that off. That's no big deal. Once in a while, if I get a text, my computer will go ding, but it's okay. It's it's all, it's all live, and that's what we do. So, uh, David, you, you know, you're referred to as bro. Yeah. Uh, you have been uh, almost lifelong friends with Sammy. Let's go way, way back, uh, Justice Brothers, and even, you know, dial it back a, a little more. It, it's quite possible that you may be the musician who has played with Sammy longer than anyone. How, how did you meet? How did you become friends? And what was that spark that has endured that you're, you know, you're still friends today? Right. I was thinking of a corny joke. I said, we could call it Jurassic Sammy, you know, but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, I met, okay, I'll go right to it. I've told the story a few times, but it's, it's really good. Uh, and we are, we call each other the, our oldest loving, old, oldest living friends. In other words, Especially, I have one other guy outside of my family that I've known longer than Sam, and I met him when I was 13. I met Sam when I just turned 17, like literally that month. So I was 16, boom, 17. I was a junior in high school in San Bernardino, California. Sammy grew up in Fontana, uh, which is about 20 minutes away. You know, it's called the Inland Empire. It was a hotbed for musicians in the 60s. I mean, it really... A couple pretty heavy people came out of this area, like uh, Jim Messina and stuff like that with the Buffalo Springfield and Loggins and Messina and a few other names. I even think, well, whatever, enough of that. But I was playing in my first band with my oldest living friend, Jamie, and we were called Youngblood. And I was a uh, I got my first drum set when I was 15, ninth grade, and we did our first gig at a uh, a school assembly. Well, that band ran its course. I kind of outgrew it. I, I you know, I, I wasn't, I was kind of humble, but when you're young, you're a little cocky, you know? So a friend of mine at high school who was a really good guitar player named Eric said, Hey, there's a really good band forming in San Bernardino and they need a drummer. You ought to go check them out. 
So I did. They didn't have a name yet. And they were all older guys. They were like in their early 20s, 23, 20. And I was like, whoa, a bunch of old guys, right? When you're 17, 23 is old. And I, <laughs> I, I didn't have any whiskers. You know what I'm saying, whatever. So I was fearless. And I go to this thing and they like me, I guess, you know, for what I had talent. I've been playing for two years and I've was listening to everything, R&B, Cream, Hendrix, Beatles. And I had a pretty good palate. Uh, you know, and back in those days, AM radio before FM, there were so many styles on the radio, you kind of had to be more versatile. So I joined this band. They had three guitar players and a bass player. The bass player, this band was called The Mobile Home, and, and that's where I met Sam. So the guy that told me about the band, the guitar player, didn't like the fact that there were two other guitar players and the older guy named Jesse, the Mexican guy, he was the leader and he was really played loud. He sounded like Eric Clapton. It was like, whoa, I'm deaf for this reason. You know, I kid you not. But I'd never played with the guys that could play like Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton. It was like my band, they were just newbies, you know. So the guitar player quit. And that guitar player's brother, Barry, was Sammy's buddy. So Barry told Sammy, hey, my brother quit this band. You ought to go check them out. They're pretty good. And Sammy showed up at our rehearsal. I remember sitting there going, who's this guy? And I'll tell you what he had on. He had a, like a little afro, like Eric Clapton. He had a Fu Manchu. <laughs> he had a pinstripe, double-breasted brown jacket with a white T-shirt, pair of Levi's, and chucka boots like Jeff Beck. And he had a roach clip on a lapel. And I thought, fuck, this guy looks cool, man. <laughs> so, but I was cocky. So after he he checked us out, and uh, you know, I, I was thinking, man, I made it. I'm playing with some 20-year-olds, you know. And the Jesse, I say to Jesse, I go, who is this guy? Is he any good? What can he do? You know, I didn't know him. He was just a stranger, you know, because I knew all the musicians in town. I knew the hot players that were older. We all knew him. And I never heard of this guy, but he looked cool. And um Jesse goes, oh, he, he plays guitar and he sings. I go, okay, cool. So he auditioned for us. He auditioned for my second band. It wasn't my band, but I was in my second garage band. We didn't call it that back then, but it was a garage. And he played Sunshine of Your Love by Cream and Outside Woman Blues off of, uh, I think it's off... Uh, Fresh Cream, or whatever, I can't remember anyway. And he played the solo note for note on Sunshine of Your Love. And I go, this is... And from that day on, I was. we were like, we just went together, you know. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I hate this. I mean, I shouldn't say I hate to say it, but I think I smoked my first joint with Sam. Not <laughs> Back then, you could do five years for possession, you know. But I mean, like, on, I, I, when you're a kid and you do that, all you do is laugh for like three hours and then go eat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> neither That's of amazing. us are in the pot you know like in fact when i join i'm going to jump for, forward when i auditioned for him much later which is a good story in you know 1980 to to do all the geffen stuff one thing i really liked about his band was sam had done a lot of stuff he never i mean i won't i don't know if you want to talk about that but way back in the day it was the 60s and people did drugs you know and he did a few things that kind of hurt him so he he knew that and his father died an alcoholic 
you know, his daughter was a boxer and he died on Skid Row, you know, and it was terrible. I mean, it's a sad story, but Sammy was clean. When I did all those Geffen records, like One Way to Rock and all that, he would like, like if the crew was getting high, they would hide because he was like, we don't do drugs. And he was like, I, I like that because when I joined a band and go on the road for the first time, last thing I wanted to do is get caught up in a bunch of party and shit, you know, but we did like wine. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that's how I met Sam. He literally auditioned for the band and we call it the Mobile Home Blues Band. And from there, our relationship started and I've known him since that was 19. Are you ready? It was the spring of 1968. Wow. That's awesome. So when yeah. he came to it at that time, which which skill was the the lead standout skill? Was was he a better guitar player or was he a good singer? Like which one was his voice you know, like that, as outstanding then? Or which one was good, first? You know, that's a good question. I would say it was 50-50. Wow, okay. And because he was new and unknown and you know, sometimes we'd bump heads when you like after that we formed a couple bands. The most famous one to me, I shouldn't say famous, but it was called the Big Bang. Sammy was really into astronomy, not astrology. Although we were definitely into astrology. He reminds me all the time I'm a Pisces. Bro, you're a Pisces. You that's why you're fucked up. You know, <laughs> I'm a Libra, that's why I'm cool, you know. But uh then I say, Well, wait a second, George Washington was a Pisces. And, Kurt Cobain, you know, whatever. <laughs> George Harrison, you know. But um, <clears throat> anyway, um, what was I going to say? What was your question again? Which was his kind of standout skill at that oh, time? Was oh, he a yeah, better player yeah. or a singer? Well, I was, um, we would bump heads sometimes. And I'm just remembering stuff as we go. And there was one guy, in, there was a band in town that was like the supreme band. They had a record on the radio. They had great singers and players. They were called The Light, L-I-G-H-T. And they had like, like this was AM radio. And the guitar player's name was Bob Anglin. And, and we both looked up to him. You know I mean? We both, this guy's really good. And, you know, I used to say stuff like, God, I wish you played more like Bob. And he goes, well, I wish you played more like so-and-so or whatever, you know. And, you know, but, you know, we we're like brothers. You know, he's like, he was like an older brother. He really was. Because I was, I mean, he would pick me up at my mom's house for rehearsal. I didn't have a car. You know what I mean? It was like my older brother, you know, it was like really cool, you know. But I think Sam developed as we went along, he became better as a singer. But really, it was kind of equal because we were always, we were pretty much a trio. The first part of our existence outside of that band, we were a trio. And a trio guitar player has to do everything. He's he's I think that really developed his uh abilities, having the pressure of fronting, playing guitar, and singing, you know. And then we had several many bass players, uh, and then came the Justice Brothers, which you know, awesome. was, yeah. <laughs> Hey, this is Todd Galapo, creative director for the Red Rocker, Sammy Hagar. And you're listening to the one, the only, The Bogus Otis Show. There's there's so many eras that we want to uh, to touch on, kind of in the arc of, you know, of your respective careers and, and the bands that you've kind of ebbed and flowed in. Um, and we're, we're going to hit a bunch of them. Um, th this one is a personal favorite for me. This is a, a kind of, I would call it little known and less, you know, you're a, 
a real diehard fan, like you know many of our our listeners are, and that is the Los Trescasanos. For <laughs> me, it just seemed like an outlet for you guys to have the absolute best time. I mean, Michael Anthony, all, all of that, um, and when. Mikey would come out and join you guys kind of in the second half of some Wabo shows and you would yeah, run yeah. through, run through that Gusanos set. Um, what, what, what was, how did that project come to be? And well, was it just to get to play stuff you, you wouldn't otherwise? Well, I'll tell you what, for me personally, let's think about this. So, uh, I, the first time I, I'll just give you a real quick background of Cabo from, for me, I got invited to Cabo Wabo in 1993 Van Halen had just released their live album. I forget what it was called, Live Without a Net or something like that. Or it, it was like. Uh, That's anyway. the, the right here, right now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it was it was really good. Really good. Good live record. Really. Those guys are great, man. And it pisses me off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, I dig. Eddie and Alex are, are awesome. And Mikey, too. Um, so. Sam and I are in touch, right? And I was, uh, after Sam joined Van Halen, it was like 1986 was the beginning of the end for me, meaning, okay, after Farm Aid, which was uh, the fall of 1985, then Sam, they worked on 5150 and all that, and the rest is history. I'll try to be consolidate this. Uh, so I scuffled as a musician i was in the bay area i didn't really have a lot of connections musically because guess what i've been on the road for five years and making like three three or four albums uh well three albums and actually four heavy metal is a, a movie soundtrack and so when when that all ended me and the keyboard player jesse harms tried putting together a band now the what's funny about that any listeners here John Kalodner, the A&R guy for Geffen, who you've seen him like, he was the judge and I can't try 55. He's in Dude Looks Like a Lady with Aerosmith. Uh, Kalodner is a genius, you know, and he he's the one that basically discovered Sammy, or I should say signed him to Geffen. So he liked us. He liked the band. I mean, we were a backup band to a, a, a solo artist. Sammy's, a, you know, it's, it's, his, it's a Sammy Hagar band, but it's Sammy, right? It wasn't like the Beatles, four separate guys, you know. And um, so he actually foot the bill for me and Jesse and Gary had joined Boston. So he was out and we were auditioning guitar players and singers. And we were thinking Bill Church would be the bass player, whatever. It's a long story, but we did that for like a couple of years to no avail. We, we made demos. So I started like working. I actually worked a couple day jobs and was like in some weekend bands because I love playing and which is a good thing because I kept my chops up and I kept in touch with music. During that time, Sam and I were together and we would jam sometimes. And uh, in fact, I played on his uh, unboxed record. I don't know when that came. I think that was about the same time that I was doing Cabo. But anyway, he said, bro, I got this, you know, I knew about Cabo Wabo because I watched MTV. He goes, well, the brothers don't like it, meaning Eddie and Alex. And I love, you know, I, I got this club because I live down there sometimes. I love it. He's like a beach guy. And he goes, uh, 
I'd like you to come down and jam. I'm like, fuck yeah. So that gig, Pirate Radio put on a broadcast and it was the live uh, right here, right now. And uh, Brent from Poison, uh, Richie Coatson. There was a bunch of people, Mikey. I forget all the people that came, but like Matt Sorum, people like that from Guns N' Roses. There was like a cavalcade, if I can use an old word, of a bunch of rockers and I was just, you know, I mean, I was kind of known, but I'm just a drummer and that backed up the dude. I was like, man, all these guys are like, um, you're up, you know, I really dig your band, blah, blah, blah. So we just jammed. And uh, I was the only drummer there. So it was really neat because I got to play with all these people, you know, with uh, Brett Michaels, right? We we played, I remember we played Freebird and shit like that. I never played these songs. We were just jamming. So that was August 1993. Sam decided, I'm going to do a birthday bash that October. And that's how Low Street, like the Mexican says, you know, what do you call that wormer at the bottom of a mezcal bottle? He goes, it's a gusano. So me, Mikey, and Sam, just we learned a bunch of Sammy and fun tunes. Like we did uh, that Doors tune, uh, uh, I think, Keep Your Hands, uh, whatever. Uh, and we did some Beatles songs and we did James Brown songs. But then we learned like about 10 Sammy tunes. And I got to tell you, the band was on fire. I go back and watch that shit now. The tempos and the energy, I'm like, damn, you know, to repeat, you know, we were, you know, we were champing at the bit, the bit, you know. And so I guess Van Halen at the time, they were like uh, having a sabbatical or whatever. And it was just a blast. I got to know Mikey. Mikey's a really big-hearted guy. And uh, we all grew up listening to the same stuff, playing Cream and shit, you know. It was a great jam band. So that's how it happened. So Gusanos played the birthday bash every year up until the Wabos were formed. And the Wabos weren't called the Wabos. They were that, it was just the Sammy Hagar band. Then it was the Wabaritas, and then it was the Wabos, which I prefer anyway. But uh, so from 1993 to 96, so three years, seems like more than that. We did a couple of New Year's Eves and stuff, but I felt like I was down there f at least four times with the Gusanos. So I hope that answers your question. Killer. Killer. That's cool, man. <laughs> so as a drummer, you know, if someone asked you, you know, is there is there a signature louser sound or fill or drum beat that some that you could say that's me? That's what I do? Wow. Yeah. Well, what comes to mind is uh, my older brother who just passed away. I'm going to do a little shout out. He was a, a he was kind of a music aficionado uh, when I was a kid. My it, like like a lot of people, their older brother and sister would play a lot of records. And as a young kid, I heard a lot of stuff that I probably maybe wouldn't have heard except for the radio. And we listened to a lot of Motown and R and B. I loved. I knew it. So I really like, it's, it's not really my lick, but I use a lot of like the, the lick to, uh, like Babies on Fire is uh, is like, uh, is, a, is, a, is a Benny Benjamin lick, you know, back, back a boom. That's a real classic Motown lick. I knew it, man. That's why I asked. I, I could hear it. I hear it. I love that <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I could hear it, man. And, and, and like, so I think. I bring think, the swing. I think also, I think I have good swing. One thing I do that I think I do well, and I'm humble, 
is what I call straight fours on the snare drum. It's like what uh, what Alex played on Pretty Woman, where you're just playing the the quarter notes and the snare. Yeah. I like I like implementing that when it's necessary. I like I can't get no satisfaction. The whole song is that right. And there's a certain feel of that just to play straight fours. You don't want it to sound like square or like a march. But uh, there was a band that Sammy used to, and I used to cover in nightclubs called Traffic with Steve Winwood and Dave Mason yeah. and the drummer Jim Capaldi. I loved. So I do a lot of. Uh, I think a lot of my fills are more salt black or R and B, like like the beginning of uh, uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. You know, boom, brap, boom. Those kind of things, you know. Nice. I tend to play that kind of stuff, but I really like. Uh, I'm just trying to think of uh, maybe what I would do that's like stands out, and I I like to play. Straight well, can, I, can I can I jump on what I was going to say because it's ahead, part two. But I was going to say, is that what you brought? That kind of soul is that what you brought to the song? Let me take you there. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Well come on. That's I knew just... it. Are you kidding? <laughs> That's the way it is. I love that song. I love what you did to the, the drums. Make it okay. pass, man. I'm going to give you a little nugget here, and then I'll make it. I promise not to long wind on this. God, I can't help myself. I love talking about this shit. The song Baby's on Fire, the first record, the first full album I did with Sammy, which honestly is my favorite. Stanley Hampton is like, I'm so proud of Killer. that. I, Killer. I never recorded it with a pro before or a pro producer. And I, I just worked with a metronome for like, six months I, every song i knew i'm gonna get this shit grooving no click tracks there were no click tracks really wow oh no no click tracks i'll tell you the only click track we did uh, uh back in those days was i never said goodbye because i begged him uh eddie and sam were going to produce that and i thought fuck these guys are talented musicians but can they produce so i said please let us play to a click and they go we don't want to hear it you can hear it so i count out the songs to the click because my theory was, I'm jumping ahead for a second, but this is important for the drummers out there. I knew that my shit would be in the groove. I can really play well with a click. So if they screwed up or had overdub, my part would be consistent. Because <laughs> we did that record like in nine days. I was like, please let me use, let me use the drum machine. Like I, I put on like a you know like a you know. But anyway, getting back to Babies on Fire. That song is The Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett with the Motown intro. The bridge to Babies on Fire is the horn part in Midnight Hour. It goes... Da, 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 no way. That's, cool. That's awesome. And the beat, I mean, I didn't go, I didn't just stick it from that song. To that, but both Sam and I would joke and go... I got I to play Midnight Hour on this. You know, I mean, not the act, not literally the song, but the feel. You know, but that song, if you listen to Midnight Hour, listen to Babies on Fire, uh, it's a little different tempo. It's more back, heavier, but it's, it's the drum beats pretty much the same. That's super cool. Yeah. Thank you, Unbelievable. So talk you, about that. You, <laughs> uh, David, you, you are going in so many directions. Uh, some of the things that we thought about earlier chatting with you, the, the roads that you're going down are. Uh, everything and more that 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 we had hoped. Let's let's just jump for a second to uh, VOA and 1984. So, okay. yeah, you, you mentioned this a minute ago. You said you know it was Sammy was the solo artist and we we were the backup band, and that's kind of you know how how it was. Um, 
But I got to say, I I have a, a mild disagreement with you on that in a, in a good way. And, okay. and, it, and it goes like this. Um, if I think about music videos like I Can't Drive 55, and you, you talked about Kalodner and, you know, the, the his role in that video, and you look at the the back of the album cover of VOA, all, all of you guys as, as a band. To me, yeah, it was Sammy Hagar in name, but it felt to me like there was some deliberate component to putting all of you as players and members of this band um, a little bit more to the to the fore. And Darren and I agree that VOA is, you know, probably one of our favorite albums of all time. The song Swept Away, he and I could listen to Swept Away over and over and over and over again. Triple song. I want to ask you, what was that kind of moment in time? Because here's Sammy, you know, really kind of hitting his stride in terms of really kind of breaking out a little more in the mainstream. You guys are his band, but to me it felt like it was all of you kind of being put put forwards. Here, Bill Church, Jesse Harms, Gary Peel. What was it like in that time recording that album and going on tour with that band? Well, let me just respond to what you're saying. I agree with you 100%. I don't want to paint the picture that Sam was a tyrant. He was not. As a matter of fact, I just got chills thinking about it. <laughs> he, I was just playing in bars before I joined the band and made all these records. I mean, like we played together, we were we were starving musicians. When he joined Montrose, I thought he had made it, but he informed me a little later, bro, we were hurting out there. Our record wasn't selling. It became a classic later, but in the meantime, we were hurting, you know, and their, their, their deal wasn't that much. I won't go into the money back then, but he was just happy to be playing with people that had already done it. Ronnie just came off Edgar Winter tour that was big so he was the star even though he was the guitar player in that band so Sammy let me just lay the groundwork as a musician that first record and I'm gonna I'll toot my own horn here at the risk of like make, making it sound like I'm exaggerating Standing Hampton going back to the first record then then the VOA all those records pretty much I could play bass pretty good and sam and i had this uh relationship musically we have like a catalog of shit that we played in clubs for for like four three or four years maybe five i don't know it seems like like 17 i was 17 to 23 what's that that's six years whatever so the point is is like i had a lot of input the parts i came up with we discussed arrangements i didn't write songs i mean he gave me some co-writing on stuff because I put so much ideas into it, but he wrote the lyrics and the chord changes, right? So it was a real concerted effort. It was not just, hey, play this. Here, I made a demo, learn this. No, he did utilize the talent, absolutely. So you're, I'm glad you pointed that out. I guess when I say it's a, it's a rock star, I don't know what, what prompted me to say it, not a rock star, but like a, a solo artist is that, He's the one that signed the deal. Anybody could have replaced me if he wanted to, but he didn't. I was just some unknown kid that he played with, that he knew that I was creative, and we had a we had a uh, chemistry. So, fifty five on VOA, we we uh, how can I put this? He he had a, a studio in the bottom of his house in Mill Valley. We called it the Blood Bank, and like. 
sort of like where you give blood only our our jargon is like if something was cool it was cold-blooded but then we would just abbreviate stuff like people do now you know they they cut the end of a word off you know the slang like so we called it if something was really good it was blooded so the blood bank was where we made some blooded music right so I'd go to, I'd, we both, he got me in the jogging. I'd jog over to his house sometimes. He'd show me a song. He had a 16-track recorder with a foot pedal. He would, we would jam it, learn it. He'd hit the button, he'd stand next to me. We would record the demo. And then he'd go, bro, either he or I would play bass. Go, I'm going to go up and make dinner. I want you to put a bass to this, whatever you feel like. I put the bass to Sweet Hitchhiker. That's my bass line. I put the bass to One Way to Rock. I didn't play it on the album. Follow me? So we made these demos. And then they take those demos that we made and show them to the producer and the, the record company. And then the musicians come in and, you know, Church makes it better. It's a demo. It's rough. You know, I, I'm not a great musician on guitar, but I, enough to where some parts he actually used, you know? But so what I'm saying is, is that it was like a band when it came to creativity. You're absolutely right. There was no fuck you, I'm the leader. He'd go, well, what do you think? I'd go, you know what? I don't think we should go to the bridge there. I feels like it needs to, and, and he would try it. He goes, okay, cool, you know. So it was a real pretty uh, democratic creative process, even though I was working for, he was my boss. You dig? So it's like a fine line. Plus we were brothers, you know, which could get us in trouble. So VOA, that was with Ted Templeman. And we recorded I Can't Drive 55. Sammy, you, you mentioned uh, Swept Away. After Three Lockbox Records, Sam was really starting to, you know, he did a, he did his first video. Uh, he was starting to get more mainstream. And I, I'm proud of the fact that I joined his career when he was a little bit more uh, FM friendly. Uh, and stuff, you know, like standing, uh, standing Hampton got a lot of play. So, but the record just went gold. Well, VOA went platinum. We were on the road. It was only out a few months and went platinum. That was like the first time for him. So Swept Away was written about, he he did a vacation with, with Betsy, his first wife and his son, Aaron. They went to uh, Sardinia and Africa and all these places. So all that inspired him. But when he got back to the United States from that vacation after our three lock box tour, he got pulled over driving from the airport, whatever. And that's what made I can't drive. It's a true story. It's like, <laughs> fuck, I can't drive 55 miles an hour. What the fuck is this? You know, this is like 1984, right? Or 83, 84. Yeah. So, I mean, in California, the signs all said 55. I mean, it was it was terrible, you know. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you guys had that or not, but <laughs> I mean, the freeway, five lanes, there's like in LA, there's like four or five lanes and people going, no way people are driving 55. So we, we, <laughs> we recorded it and the beat now, the beat we did was almost like a ZZ Top kind of, uh, you know, the, the 16th notes, like, you know, whatever, the 16th over the four. But we first recorded it like, we recorded it like his song, um, Rock and Roll Weekend, you know that that song. Dan, Dan, Dan. Love it. So it was like song. the beat was like ding, ding, dang, ding, 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 ding. It was kind of funny. It was like it was sort of like uh, High Hopes that that song we did on on Box. 
And we played it for Claude, and he goes, God, Sammy, I don't know. I don't hear this squeaky voice. He's like, no, nah, Sammy, you got to read. So we recut it. And together, I got to say, I didn't write the song, but together we came up with that whole thing. He did ask me to play the fill in the beginning. He goes, bro, if we're doing that beat, why don't you start it out with digga, 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 digga. Oh, okay, cool. You know, so we kind of made it more 16th, sort of like uh, she's got legs and all that. I mean, we weren't copying them, but it was that era. Yeah. And, and you know, so the, so uh, we demoed that out. And, you know, that, that to me, well, that's the, the jewels of the album. You know, that that put put us over the top. That's kind of his signature song, the Sammy Hagar song, right? Anyway, uh, we recorded it in uh, Fantasy, where like uh, Creedence Clearwater Water recorded, and Ted Templin was the producer. A guy named Jeff Hendrickson was the engineer. He kicked ass, and it was the first time our keyboard player recorded with us. You know, Jesse, that's the first record he made with us. All the other ones he just did like he was live, but Three Lockbox was done with studio musicians and stuff on keys. Like Jonathan Kane came in too, but uh, I don't know if I answered your question. But the way we uh, created music was very—it uh, was a—it was like a, a chemistry and democratic. You know, there was—it was like if you have a good idea, speak up. You know, That's I drove awesome. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have, uh, and maybe you already answered this now, but uh, do you have a favorite recording? Like, is there a song or an album where you feel your drumming and your sound has captured the best? My sound? Uh, you know, it's funny. I play different now. Do you guys play at all? Do you, do you guys play music, any instruments or? I don't want to put you on the spot. Well, we're, we're both guitar players. Okay. Well, that, okay. I forgive you, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, let me just say this, that this is really about me right now. And, and this is all about you. This is okay. But it, okay. It's the seventies and I'm trying to get signed with a band called toys. And Sam actually produced one of our demos. He liked us. In fact, my guitar player, who's, who's not with us anymore at the time and singer joined Sammy's band, but emotionally couldn't handle it. And that, and Gary Peel got his part. This is 1977. So Larry and I, this guy, Larry Reed, he had a brother and a cousin, and we were in a band called Toys, and then we got another guy on guitar, Larry, another Larry. Anyway, I was really into funk and R&B when I was into Justice Brothers, and rock just didn't seem as interesting to me. It's not like I wanted to play jazz, but I wanted something more drum interesting, you know, funky. I joined this band Toys because I wanted to get back into rock again. After Sam got in Montrose and made that record, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, shit, what am I doing? You know, I, I'm kind of like stepping away from what we started out to do. But it was good. I learned a lot, you know, learned playing fusion and stuff, you know, more syncopated stuff. To tell you the truth, it's easier to play that stuff than it is a big, fat, solid rock beat. You know what I mean? It's It's easier to play more notes. And to have a lot of space, you know. Maybe guitar players don't know that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so why am I telling you this? So in the seventies, this recording, the recording situation, when you don't have a lot of money, you're at the mercy of the room and the engineer, and making demos. I always play with the rim shot, 
on my drum. I, I just was a natural playing a rim shot. All rock drummers play with a rim shot, pretty much. Even the ones that play traditional grip, like Stuart Copeland. But the engineers and everybody were like, we're not getting a good snare sound. We want a fatter snare sound. So I started playing on top of the drum. And it was really hard for me at first. I had to change my whole technique. Well, guess what? I changed my technique, auditioned for Sam and got the gig. I was freaked out because all of a sudden I knew I was going to make a record in about nine months. So you say my sound. Standing Hampton is no rim shots, but I'm beating the fuck out of my drums. I use really big sticks. And someone that did that, that I learned, a guy named Larry London, big, heavy set. He's played drums with Elvis Presley and Motown and uh, a bunch of people, but uh, played played on Steve Smith's, not Steve Smith, Steve Perry's solo album after uh, O'Sherry, that drummer on O'Sherry, Larry London, mother, he's, he's just fantastic. He played that big fat sound, you know, big sticks. Anyway, so Standing Hampton was probably, I wasn't as loose but it was the most prepared, I think the best overall material and the best execution. It was just on fire. We were like really horny to play. But if you were, if I was to say something more of my sound, the way I play, it's kind of like the first two songs on, on this right here. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, what's it? Uh, High Hopes. Killer. Yeah. That's a killer song. Buying My Way to Heaven. They gave me a drum solo in that. Now, I had my snare cranked. That's not really totally my sound. But uh, put this back. Yeah. that's so cool, man. So I, what I was going to say, like, where before I pass it back to Brent, my favorite my favorite recording of how I think you sound the best to me personally is uh, Live Hallelujah. Like, it, you're, the drums, I don't know who make a record of that. Or oh, it dude. sounds huge. Okay. You sound huge on that album. Darren, that's me. That's the way that snare sound is me. That I mean, yeah, it sounds huge. The engineers and the producers, they they have control over that, but that's me hitting a rim shot. That's me. Let me just say this. After Sam joined Van Halen, <laughs> I started playing in all these different bands and I kind of got back in my old style. And you know, it seems kind of maybe like silly or insignificant, but I had to kind of relearn how to play the rim. Like when you when you use the rim, if you do a fill, you want to do the rim like a timbali player. So I I, I practiced my ass off to play on top of the kit. Uh, the drummer for Boston, Sid uh, Sid Hashin, played that way too. It was the seventies. They wanted that big fat thud. Steve Smith, Journey, those first uh, Journey records. He's not playing a rim shot. I watched him. He's playing like in the middle of the head. So it's like goosh or ka. There's no pop, you know? That's the 70s or the late 70s, early 80s. But uh, after when I rejoined Sammy in 96, and well, the band wasn't formed until 97, but Sam and I were in the studio again in 96 after he, quote, was fired or somebody broke up or whoever knew. I don't know. You probably know that for me. It sounded like basically the brothers... It seemed like it was almost mutual, but I don't know. I can't quote anything. All I know is he said, like, I won't say what he said, but he basically made it sound like he got fired and replaced, whatever. Uh, I was playing in, like, soul bands and horn bands, and I started getting my R&B stuff back. So 
when the Wobblers were formed, I was kind of playing like I was in the Justice Brothers, more like a little bit more raw, you know. And, I, you know, this may be boring or not that interesting, but you you asked what is that? That's like a real when I think about it. It'd be like, I don't know, like I, I literally changed my style. If, if you were a baseball player, you want to hit left hand instead of right handed all of a sudden. And not quite that bad, but I had the balls to do that and make a record, you know. Did <laughs> Sammy know that at the time? I didn't, I didn't, talk. I, I didn't say shit. You know? <laughs> a wise man. Well, he, didn't, he didn't even know. But I'll tell you something now. And I swear to God, I just want to mention this because I work with Eddie Van Halen on a record. And Eddie is, uh, I'm jumping ahead. We really probably need to do this again, and I will, but I'm jumping all over the place. When I worked on Never Said Goodbye, which that wasn't the name of it, like they did 5150, but Sam still owed Geffen a record as Sammy Hagar. So we recorded that and he was wanting to make it politically correct. So he played guitar and sang, had Eddie on bass, me on drums and Jesse Harms on keyboards. So it was like the Sammy band and the Van Halen kind of not really... I don't exactly know why, but it made me happy. You know, he paid me well, and I got to play with Sam again, and then Eddie. So it's like not too many drum. I think I'm the only drummer besides Alex that played with Eddie playing bass, of all things. Sam played guitar on that whole record, except for one part, which I won't go into, but it's all Sam. But Eddie was like, bro, got to play rib shots. And this is after I'd, like, changed my whole thing around. So the song... Hammer falls. I I said okay. I'll, I mean, without you know, like my technique wasn't that good, but hammer falls. When the hammer falls, we that's that's me playing like old school with a click track, you know. So, uh, but Eddie was like on me like quick. He was like, God, this guy fucking notices. I can't hide, you know. Like, well, I stopped because they like this. Nah, forget that. I want the rim, you know. So it's funny, you know. I've always wanted to like kind of thank Eddie for like encouraging me to go back to my original style but then you know things happen you know so brent it sounds like bro knows the secret guitar note that's oh, Eddie may have God. played on that album i forget which song it's just like a, <laughs> it's like maybe an arpeggio we won't out yet we won't it out isn't like, it isn't eddie it's not like eh, it's not like some wild sauce the soloing no it's like eddie you know when he's soloing but it was like maybe like just a a, a rhythm part like a finger picking yeah you know? it's called the secret note they talk well, about that. There's like a secret note on there somewhere. And Brent and I've been trying know, to I, dig around to find out what it is. But you know what? A friend of mine, a guy that produced a lot of Arabo's records, he knows Bob Daspit. He's a, he's a great guitar player. He's a great engineer, and he produced like two or three of our records. And he knows which one it was because he's like an Eddie freak, you know. Awesome. But, uh, that, anyway, that's uh, that, that's some research for another day too. We're gonna we're gonna dig into that one. Uh, a little more absolutely i want to say to, to darren though that uh i appreciate you bringing up hallelujah because see when you give me these questions it makes me go back into time and i think of the origin like the 70s thing and then changing you know but i have a really good left hand my left hand popping that snare i think is my you might you know i've had producers say on the same drum set i'll sit down and go whoa there's a different, you have a way more crack than that other guy. And I won't mention names. They're like more experienced, but 
I'm a little bit of an animal with my left hand. Well, it certainly sells on an album like that. I think that album sounds fantastic. Like there's so many great Sammy albums. Not everyone talks about every single one, but I think that's a lost, like a gem that no one gives enough credit to. That sounds so good. That album. I love that song. I love the song. Hallelujah. I love the groove and what he's singing about. It's really heavy. It's not, it's girls in cars, you know, it's a really, it's like Sammy's uh, high hopes and buy my way to heaven. Pretty clever lyric i thought like what he was talking about you know not to get political or religious you know but anyway next (laughs) (laughs) uh so the 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 live hallelujah is actually a great uh segue to what i wanted to ask you about next you know so much in the arc of sammy's career and and all of his bandmates and in all the bands he's played in the connection to the fans the lifestyle piece the kind of you know bringing the cabo wabo on the road and, you know, doing that crazy on stage fanatics thing. And I, I, I think I was on that stage three or four times at, at various shows. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like having oh, that yeah. interaction with the fans? Because, you know, off air before we started recording, I, I shared a story with you about um, my license plate getting signed yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as you came onto the stage. And, you know, I'm, I'm there kind of right over your shoulder watching you as as hundreds of other fans got to do with those, those tickets on the stage. Uh, what, what was that experience like being that close and interacting with fans in that, in that setting? It was really cool. Here's the deal. Sam and I both loved, especially growing up, there's something about playing a smaller room that there's an intimacy. First of all, it usually sounds really bassy and fat. A lot of those halls we play in, it's like an depending if it's like an airplane hangar, it's the echo's terrible. I mean, on stage it's not bad, but anyway, there's an intimacy about playing at the whiskey or or you know the Starwood in L.A. or 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 Gazzari's, you know, even though it only holds like me, like the Cabo Wabo is a fairly good sized club, but so we had so much fun. When, okay, how how do I put this? So what the impetus for that really was trying to create that vibe of a small club, not so much. And, and well, guess what? He owned the Cabo Wabo and we played down there before I joined Sam's band again, while I was in Van Halen, the, the Guzanos, Los Tres Guzanos. So he wanted to create that atmosphere. Plus it probably was good for the pocket too, you know, uh, <laughs> Sam is definitely a shrewd businessman. But anyway, I you know when we were growing up, I'm gonna I'm gonna side note for a second, just bookmark the the uh, back the 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 what would you call it the what do we call that on stage? Yeah, the on stage. But there's a thing like not the yeah, pe- we we got we got t-shirts that's that call this uh, on stage fun addicts. If I remember, oh, there you go, correctly. right? <laughs> right. Um, God, what was I? I forgot. I've got so many thoughts going through my head right now, and, and I don't want to say Father Time is in my way because I think my mind's sharp. But damn, I'm going to say something. I wanted to bookmark the uh, the thing. Uh, I forgot. Whatever. Well, you so were talking I, about being like you know capturing the intimacy of a smaller club and a smaller vibe, right? Right, 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 right. right. Um, but um, oh, I know. What I was going to say thank you. When I grew up with Sam. I was more of an academic. I wasn't like a brainy student. My my siblings were smarter than me. My younger brother's freaking like a math wizard, you know. 
And, you know, my older, my older brother was a genius to me. Sam, sometimes when we were kids, he seemed a little illiterate to me compared to, I went to private parochial schools. He grew up in a, in a steel mill town, right? But what I'm prefacing like this for is because the guy's a genius. I mean, like, I don't, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm not even talking about songwriting. He has a very creative, ingenious mind. So he gets a feeling, he's emotional, he's an alpha dog, but he's very sensitive. So I think that's a good barometer or rudder. So he he follows his intuition, his instincts, and he wanted to create that vibe that he liked. And I, it was amazing. To answer your question, I loved looking back there and tossing stick to somebody. Or it felt like instead of me being in front of 10,000 people, I was back at the club, less pressure. You would think there'd be more pressure, but there wasn't. It felt more intimate. So when you're playing a small club, you hear things better. Psychologically, you take more chances. It's more fun. You know, if the cameras are on and you're doing a t live TV, well, you're going to make sure you're, you know, you're nervous. I don't care who you are. You know, it, it kind of like Major Looser. And then his whole thing, waitress, you know, and like having to wait. He made it into the Cabo Wabo which it was brilliant. I, it was so much fun. I got to say, I dug it. I'm glad I got to sign your thing, you know. <laughs> do, do, you, uh, do you still have any contact with some old uh, Wobbles players? Do you, do you talk to Mona? Oh, you see yeah. Mona? I talk, yeah. We, I just, uh, last year, God, it's already like, uh, we, we, I did the 75th anniversary at uh, the club. I did Sammy's 75th. So what's, what is it right now? It's March. So that's like five months ago or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm in touch with Vic. I'm in touch with Mona a lot. Uh, I'm probably out of all of them. I'm in touch more with Sam. Like if if I'm if I'm like drinking a really good wine or making a drink I like or I you know like he's really into food. I'll take it's so silly. It's like I don't do this on Instagram or anything, but I'll take a picture of some stuff I made or my wife made it. Like I know he would dig. You know like like. <laughs> rack of lamb and a glass of wine whatever click and you go damn bro whatever you know so we do shit <laughs> like that you know it's not really even music related it's more like when we were kids you know uh yeah we were starving and he could cook remember one time we caught some fish up in the mountains and he really made a trout taste good like frying it with butter and shit you know anyway was he always so, a foodie? So was he, was he always a foodie, like way back when? Always. His, he, one of his grandfathers, Italian, uh, is was a chef at uh, what was it? Uh, he was a chef at a college, you know, yeah. like like a chef. And then his stepfather, who was Ukrainian of all things, Mike Mayotovich. I'm probably saying it wrong. He was a, also a, a cook or a chef at Chafee College, and that guy was great, you know. Uh, you know, Sam's mom remarried after his dad, you know, well, they were separated anyway, but he was a trip. But um, yeah, Sam always had a flair for food, clothes, and uh, music, you know, maybe even food and clothes more. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a different uh, question. My father recently passed away. So let me ask you this. What's the one thing, the most important thing that your dad taught you? Wow, man. Whew. 
My father enjoyed life. Uh, it's too long a story, but my dad was, uh, I'm older than you guys. My father grew up during the Depression, you know, like me and Sam's parents. My dad was born in 1919. So while the world, you know, he hopped trains uh, when he was just like in eighth grade, his parents divorced, which was really not typical in 1920s or 30s, you know. So I would say my dad, even through the hardest of times, he he remained, I never really saw him depressed. So he, he just seemed like to be positive, even through adversity, you know. But um, I think... You got me thinking about my dad. My dad kind of was browbeat because at a young age, he had to go out and pick fruit to survive and he didn't get an education and he was a smart guy. And, you know, in the fifties, a lot of guys without any skills could just get work at General Motors. So he's one of those kind of guys, you know, get laid off all the time. My mom was a registered nurse, which was rare for the fifties for to have a, two people working in a household, I mean, that's common now. But my mom and dad both worked, you know. But uh, my dad, I'll tell you one thing, he adored my mother. And uh, I really I really saw how a man treats, you know, how he loves a wife. You know what I mean? Like, he was a good example. He was funnier and shit, too. <laughs> Solid answer, man. Did he did he uh, see you play? Yes, he did. Oh my God, yeah, I was so proud. I mean, my dad took me to Wallach's Music City to get my first drum set. You know, God, it was like I didn't even know what to do with my feet. I was playing on pots and pans, and I remember I got this Japanese, just cheap. It's called Crown. It looked like a Slingerland. It was red metal flake, but really a shitty finish. And I remember looking at the snare drum and I looked over at the Ludwigs and stuff and I go, oh, I don't know what those, you know. And then I go, well, this, as a kid, I remember I said to the guy at this music store, this is funny. I go, those other drums have like a, a snare bed. I didn't know what I was talking about. He goes, oh, I can fix that. He took the head off and he took a grinder and went, well, I guess I'm buying it now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> My parents were middle class, I would say lower middle class, if you know what that means. In other words, we weren't in poverty, but, you know, there were four kids in the house. And for them to buy me, they got me like a, my second drum set was expensive. They bought me like, I still have it today. It's like a pro kit. Same kit that Dave Clark 5 uses, Rogers. I mean, back then, $600 in 1967 was probably like $5,000, you know. So my parents supported me as a musician. And my dad had a great ear. He he really, he whistled great. He could sing harmony. I don't know. I guess maybe my dad, you asked me a question. My dad uh, turned me on to the love of music even more. Oh, you cool. know, he really yeah, appreciated it. He loved That's listening. Cool. Yeah, we used to listen to radio together. He loved the Four Tops. He loved Motown too. Anyway. Uh, no, that's a good answer, man. Solid answer. He lived to be about 88. He smoked. He smoked for like 40 years. I don't know about your dad. How old was your father when he passed? He was 79. Well, 79. What, natural causes, may I ask? Or? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's like my, my dad died in his sleep, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, I lost both my parents. I lost my mom 
she was relatively young, but you know, whatever. It's all good. Awesome. Um, that was an incredible answer. Firstly, uh, secondly, we talk about uh, family a lot. Um, lifestyle, all of that is is a, is a big part of our show and about the friendship that Darren and I have. And so, you know, a great kind of segue in, in talking about some of those memories mm-hmm. um, are special times on the calendar. And, um, you know, I, I think about, you know, Christmas and major holidays and all of that. And so I want to hit you. Uh, one of my last little questions for our episode tonight is about a little known uh, thing that you've been involved in called the December people right around oh. Christmas time. And wow. I I have been hoping and praying through those years that the, the December people would maybe, you know, come up uh, our way up Toronto. And I, I don't know if that's something that ever happened, but what what's cooking with December people? Is that a thing that'll be around again? What, what, what are you doing to have some fun playing? I'm surprised you know about that. Well, the closest I got to you was something like Ann Arbor, Michigan, or is, is it Ann Arbor? We played Detroit, Ann Arbor and Grand Rapids. Uh, wow. Okay. I'm gonna tell you something. The guy that's, it's a long story. There's a guy named Dave Varney, who is the guy that started Shrapnel Records. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You've heard yeah. He's, he's a guitar player. He's a brilliant producer. He's retired now. Well, Dave Varney went to a guy named Robert Berry, who I'm in December people, and also a band called Alliance. Robert is also part of the Rose Trace Guzanas alumni because Mikey... Van Halen didn't want him to come down there one time. I guess they were. <laughs> That's the truth. The the brothers were kind of putting the kibosh or kibosh, depending on what side of the Mississippi you're from. <laughs> uh, the, the 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 brothers literally said they pretty much. I probably maybe I shouldn't say this, but they were giving him a lot of grief about doing that with Sam. Like, hey, you're divulged, you know, to, to you know, conflict of interest, whatever. So I got Robert to come down, and Robert played uh, down there one or two times. It was great. Anyway, where am I going this December people? So Robert Shrapnel Records went to Robert and say, hey, we have an idea. We'd like someone, because Robert's brilliant. Robert plays every instrument, drums. He's a, a, a classically trained pianist, plays B3 organ, synthesizers, good guitar player, good drummer, not as good as me. And excellent bass player, played with Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer in three, okay? Guy sings, plays all the instruments you can imagine in a rock band, and also produces, writes, and has his own recording studio. So he can, like, make a record. He can make it. He has a place called Soundtech up in, uh, by San Jose, um, where people come in like a young band or whatever, or a songwriter and go, I have these songs. I like to demo one out. Well, he can play all the instruments. He's thrown me some work. I love it. I've done a few records with him. They came to him and said, we have an idea for like Christmas songs done in the style of like ACDC or Led Zeppelin or Queen. And he made several records and he was telling me about it, bro. He calls me Dave. David, you I wish you would do this, man. It's really cool. And I was on the road with Sam. And frankly, I'll be I'll be blunt. I'll be candid. I thought it was kind of cheesy. I thought, really? Christmas songs? Rock? I mean, you know, rocking around the Christmas tree? You know, <laughs> Brenda Lee? 
what are we doing here? So my wife at the time, this is years later, my wife at the time had my second wife had cancer. She's since passed away. And I met her once. She was a nice lady. Liza. Yeah, I met her. Yep. Brilliant. Tough lady. She's an attorney, a music attorney, intellectual property. She actually, I met her, I won't go down that road, and you said I could go longer, so I will. May I? Okay. Liza was Sammy's first webmaster. She's so smart, like the internet was just fledgling, right? And her boyfriend at the time was pretty good at doing stuff, and she is she, she's smart. So she approached Sam and said, hey, I'll do your website for free because it'll help me build my clientele. At the same time, she's practicing law. I mean, good God. Anyway, so that's how we met. That's a long story. So Liza's sick, and I'm dealing with that. And Robert, and we're all friends. And we went up to see Robert. And I forget why or what. You know, Robert and I are buddies. And their drummer at the time, the drummer for uh, yesterday, and YMT. YT's drummer, I forget his name right now, is, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Whatever. He is the drummer for December People. He made most of the records and did their live gigs. Well, I guess YT booked some December gigs. And at the last minute, he had, but Robert had like eight gigs booked. Calls me up, David, I don't want to cancel these gigs. Dudes, let me just say that it was the hardest fucking gig I've done in my life because I was doing Rush, Tom Petty, Billy Idol, Yes, ZZ Top, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Queen, any big rock. I mean, some of these styles, I mean, I, I dig them, but I'm not Neil Peart. I, I don't play like that. I mean, like I listen to it. I, I'm hip to what he's playing, but that ain't, I'm not, you know. So my wife says to me, bless her heart, She's got the brain tumor. She goes, David. And Sammy had started doing the circle thing. This is like 19, 2014. And I'd, I'd done a few. The Wobbles were still doing stuff. That's another story in itself, how that happened. So I wasn't real busy with Sam. We just finished that tour. That uh, The last big tour we did was the one you saw. you know. And then we did a thing where we went out with Danny Carmasi playing drums and me, we did like a duet thing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking. So my wife says to me, don't use me as an excuse. You should do this. So we were living in Palm Desert. I didn't even have a drum set. I set up like a practice pad kit with mufflings and shit because I was living in a condo on a golf course. We sold everything and moved because her treatment was out of this world and we didn't have insurance before Obamacare pre-existing conditions, you know, a whole, you got Canadians don't got to worry about that shit. Don't get me started. Anyway, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very politically savvy about a lot of stuff, but so I listened to that stuff and it freaked me out. I go, Oh my God, not only was I playing rush, but the songs were arranged just differently enough. So he wouldn't get sued. He changed the melodies you couldn't use exact same chords, but you knew it was a Rush song, for instance. We did Tom Sawyer to uh, Oh Come All You Faithful or something. I forget what it was. It was actually brilliant. 
The song I liked, the song that got me into it was I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas by Billy Idol doing White Wedding. (laughs) 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 You know, I went, boy, it sounds good. Robert played drums on it, some of it, and the other guy did. So I got my pad up. I wrote down all the songs. I put the headphones on. And I literally practiced for one month. Not I, I had these songs were medleys, like four songs, each band changed around just enough to where every time you heard ACDC go, uh, you know, back in black, you, you, you subconsciously I, I could jam that right now with somebody, even though I've never maybe played it in a band. That da da da, right? But they changed. So you got to like erase that. And then while you're hearing it, try to remember Robert's arrangement. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. <laughs> and it was challenging because it was odd time signatures and a lot of drums, a lot of stuff. We did like a Who medley. It was a bitch. Oh, my God. I love the Who, but I never played the Who. I mean, I, I did, but not like, you know, not all the stuff that we were doing. So... I would shed it for a month. And I told Robert, I go, Robert, this shit is hard, man. I go, I don't know, man. Like, it took me a week to learn three songs, I mean, three medleys, you know. And I'm talking about learning them by myself, no band, headphones. Make t- and I wrote each song out. I wrote it out to where it would get into my brain a different way. And I figured if I write out the chart, and I don't mean notes, I mean like kind of like cheat notes, like verse two, da 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 da, break here, go to the halftime. Tough prep. Get up there, just rehearse with Robert. And he goes, damn, you know this shit better than me. I was like, really? You know, we did Journey, like a Journey medley. I can't play like, I mean, I can play those songs. I don't play like Steve Smith. He plays with his left hand on the hi-hat and stuff. So it was the hardest gig I've done. And I did like two or three with them. But here's the deal. And I'll put it, I'll be, I'll just be blunt. Uh, you'll find out I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The band should have like, it was, the band was too expensive. We had like this huge light show. He was trying to do, what's that, what's that Christmas band that's like uh, every year they, they, they do big concerts and they have a big giant light show. And they're, they're called something. I can't think of the trans Siberian orchestra. Yes. They were trying to do a more club trans-siberian but only with rock it was actually cooler to me because the, the the songs were great the audiences loved it however the overhead killed us and i'm going to sound like an asshole now if robert ever hears this but i was going bro what's cool about this thing is the music and the cleverness of the songs forget about five grand a night for the lights let's start <laughs> playing smaller rooms and build up a following and get some and show promoters that we can draw crowds but most of the promoters are going what do you need to do the show well we need we need at least this much money so we did one short little tour where we actually played like in like like in midwest and in california and that was it it was just too expensive the the way they the production was too expensive so finally at the end you know and I, I told him, too, I said, you know, we need to get like uh, we made a video. We made a, that was my idea. It was silly as shit to, with the with uh, not the teacher thing. And I said, we got to look like we're Christmas. Let's dress like elves or something. Or you know, we put the ears on. 
I go, there's got to be, if it's going to be a novelty, we can't all just dress like we're, you know, shoe salesmen or whatever. Let's, <laughs> let's, have, let's have like a look. The Beatles had a look, you know. I know, I, I know I'm tooting my horn and it's some cornball stuff, but we put together some press pictures and it actually kind of got a little bit of a buzz. But by the time we switched to booking the band and getting rid of the expensive light show, it was too late, you know. Then I started working again with somebody. He started working with somebody. And uh, the keyboard player's out with the tubes. So it was like a part-time band. And frankly, fellas, I don't like working during Christmas. You know, and I did not like, we got snowed in a couple of times. We played Montana in December, okay? Billings. I mean, that's art. That's like Manitoba, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Montana is basically Southern Canada, whatever. All I'm saying is it was really fun musically. I'm proud. It really made me a better drummer. And to answer your question, I doubt we'll ever do it again unless somebody wants to put like a little tour together. But there's no way not any of us will work that hard to put a show together just to do three shows. It's not worth it. That's a great story, yeah. man. Yeah. So just, just for the time check... We really appreciate you stopping by the show. We hope you come back again. I mean, we have a ton of uh, questions on almost every album. I want to hear a lot about living it up, man, because I feel that's a soul hey, record in disguise. I got to tell you, I love this. And I I, I have so much uh, recollection. And you guys are, are like stimulating my memories. You know, not that I forgot them, but you're asking me things that make me go, oh, you know, I enjoy this. So definitely let's do it again. And uh Whatever, you know, maybe maybe we should do it like in like time periods to where I don't digress so much because there's so many things. Or, or we pick an album, like maybe one of your favorite albums and we oh, can yeah, just yeah, dissect yeah. it. But I have one last question before we wrap it up. Oh, yeah, okay, good. we'll make it a simple one, okay? No. Bro? Yes. You got pretty rocking hair, man. Who does your hair for you? Is it is it just naturally <laughs> rocking or what? Because your hair Woo! rocks. Those who can't see it. Well done. Really, this is and this yeah, is the, this is like you got the head. rock and roll mop, man. Is that, okay, is that just natural, or what, what, what's the, your secret? There's a girl. I have, I've, I've, you know, when I was younger, like the the uh, VOA record where you say when the back. I had my hair was much darker as you get older, you know, but I had almost black hair, dark brown, and I could wash it and take a blow dry, turn my head upside down, blow dry it, and it would spike out like Keith, it spike out like Ron Wood all day, no no uh, product. Now I put a little bit of gel after I wash it, because it's it just gives it some- That's like, rocking, man, look at that. But you know who cuts my hair? She's so cool, her name is Freedom, and she is Korean and German. Her, her father was in the service uh, and married a Korean woman, and she is badass, and she actually plays bass. She she break dances, she sings, but her, she's really good. And she's she's sort of avant garde. She's wild looking. She's like tripped out. She's tatted out, you know. Uh, but freedom, yeah, freedom's bad. She, and freedom cuts my wife's hair, which isn't really outrageous, but she's just good. But I've been getting my hair cut by women probably for thirty years because my my son in law, who's like a cowboy, you know. He, his my grandson came over today he had like a buzz cut you know and he had like some lightning bolts shaved in and i'm thinking he goes you don't go to a barber you go to some place where it's like they put hairspray and foo-foo you know he's like a, he's like a, <laughs> a cowboy right he's a great guy but he's like hey, you know 
I'm a man. And I said, dude, I, ain't been, I haven't been to a barber since I was in high school. You know, I mean, like, you know, next. And they. Well, Brent, if you and I uh, take the show on the road and make it to the Bay Area, uh, bro, can you hook us up with freedom? I need, I need something done here. <laughs> I'm not in, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in the, I'm in Southern California, bro. And I oh, can okay. get you up. All right, man. I need some help. I need you some guys help. are in Southern California. Now, this isn't bullshit. You got to give me some head time. You, you're welcome to come by the pad. And uh, if you're in around, and I would definitely. I'm just going to grab kidding? my hat right now. Okay, give me a sec. You want to make an appointment <laughs> with Freedom? Are you kidding me? I already be- got a bag packed. We're coming. We're leaving now. That's right, it. So look, look at this. We have gone from the hair salon to the Cabo Wabo Cantina. And it looks like we have a standing invitation to come and hang out with you David Lutzer at his place too. Look at that. I did, I did something for some a, a Canadian film crew earlier, like a few months ago. And I don't, it was, a, it was a, Sammy's doing some sort of special and it was in this room and they set up cameras and stuff. And two guys were from, from Canada. I don't know. I, I can't, I don't even know what it's for. It was going to be for Access TV or some other TV show, some, you know, like cable channel. I don't think it came out yet, but why am I thinking this? Well, they were all on my pad. So we put together drinks and sandwiches and shit. My wife is like, you can't have people come over and not feed them. I'm like, hey, six guys, man. What the fuck? I don't feel those people. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Anyway, really a pleasure. I love reminiscing. I really do. Well, uh, on that note, we'll say uh, a 55-year relationship. Uh, this has been our chat with David Bro Louser, and you heard it here first. Babies on Fire is in the midnight hour, and we are the bohosts. Wait a second. I just hope that I didn't digress too much and go down the track because I can definitely start. Uh, no, that's, are you what, that's what it's all about, man. Yeah. All right. Just but be- just before we sign off, see, I'm going to tell you just so you don't think I'm making this up. Oh, this is yeah, this yeah. is there's my plate. Hey, two K eight. This is you. That's me. And there it is, two K eight right up there, <laughs> and that's Sammy's signature right there. <laughs> awesome, very yeah. good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Pleasure. You guys are good vibe. All right, later. Take Cheers. Care. We'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Ciao. The Opus Modus Show is produced by Right Now Entertainment. Hosted by Darren Bristow and Brent Kinnair. With audio and production assistance by Andrew Wright and Record Ready in association with Right Now Entertainment. What is understood need be discussed.